0: Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. This bonus episode is especially close to my heart as someone who has worked both for and with some of the greatest creative minds in this industry, it is of course on the subject of gaming. If you're not a gamer yourself, don't worry, you don't need to be one to enjoy this episode because we're damn interesting, so we're gonna dig into the science, history, finances, and admittedly sometimes very weird psychology of gaming. We hope you enjoy this look back through the archives as we all try to get through our summer in one piece. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Weisper Chen. And these
0: were some damn interesting weeks. First link.
2: link. Uh, The first link that we have today comes from The Verge by Sean Hollister. This is called, The FDA Just Approved the First Prescription Video Game for Kids with ADHD.
1: Ooh! Oh,
0: that makes me so happy.
2: Games just became medicine, guys.
1: (laughs) Is it Minecraft?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's not Minecraft. um, Uh. And it doesn't look like much of a video game. There's like a little bit of a teaser and it kind of looks like a little bit of game by committee. But, you know, that probably was the case. Because this is the first video game to be legally marketed and prescribed as medicine in the US, and that decision comes from our very own FDA, which is authorizing mm. doctors to prescribe the iPhone and iPad game for kids between ages eight and twelve
0: with ADHD. You know what that means. Wow that means the insurance company has to buy the iPad as a medical device. Yes.
1: <laughs> ah. Finally. I, know,
0: I have so much glee about that, and I don't know why. I should. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, the system
1: is
2: not usually that lenient when it comes to, you know, supporting health care, especially mental health care. So take it while you can, man. Yeah. This game went under seven years of clinical trials, which is kind of a, a lifetime for video games, but some AAA titles will take that long. But they basically... Stuck Studied Over 600 children to figure out whether or not a game could actually make a difference in this kind of arena. And The Verge is very careful to note that according to the company's favorite of the five studies, the answer is yes. About one third of kids treated no longer had a measurable attention deficit on at least one measure of objective attention after playing the obstacle dodging target collecting game for 25 minutes a day, five days a week for four weeks.
0: Wow. Yeah, I mean, I can see how they would really, really want to take their time. To really make sure on the data, because there's such a prejudice of like, oh, no, these things make kids worse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and there's definitely room for if you have an obsessive personality, it can cause problems in other ways. You know, you have to Mm. like any medicine, you have to use it carefully. But I'm glad that they actually made the effort to say, no, we've really, without a doubt, spent the time and studied and made sure this is having an effect.
2: Yeah, I mean, the sample size is pretty modest, 600 kids. But the game is called Endeavor RX, and the company is saying that improvements in ADHD impairments following a month of treatment with this game were maintained for up to a month. And the common side effects are frustration, it's a video game, <laughs> <laughs> and headache, which are pretty mild if you think about some of the other side effects that you're getting from traditional pharmaceutical treatments, right?
0: Oh, for sure, mm-hmm. yeah.
2: But again, we're talking about a study by doctors who work for the game's developer, and that's what mm-hmm. the disclosures at the bottom of the study are careful to note. And even their conclusion is that the results, quote, are not sufficient to suggest that aklto one which I'm guessing is the beta or pilot test of the game, should be used as an alternative to established and recommended treatments for ADHD. No, I I
0: think the good way to look at it, I think, is like physical therapy. You know, if you're in a horrible car wreck, you still need a cast and antibiotics and stuff Mm -hmm. to get the bone set. But then you also need physical therapy to get strong again. There's different aspects you can strengthen with any disease.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It sounds like this game is kind of like the gummy bear supplement that you get to take as a kid. (laughs) Yes. You're like, oh, yes, finally, I get to take the one that tastes good.
2: Yeah. And I'm sure for a lot of kids who are very resistant to taking or really just dealing with the side effects of a lot of pharmaceutical medication, this is something that should get both kids and parents a little excited, as well as for the future of what this might mean for not only ADHD, but potentially Alzheimer's. Even though this is the first prescription video game that's been approved. The pharmaceutical company Bayer did introduce an FDA-approved glucose meter called Digit that could plug into a Nintendo DS back in 2010, which basically gamified testing glucose levels. So if a kid was testing a glucose level, they could then spend points when they were low enough into this exclusive type of video game. So that was kind of an early step to apply game theory, but this is a little different in that it's a game specifically designed to
0: address and treat ADHD. I think I'd want to talk to some of the kids and find out if they actually liked it cuz I think it's a subject that people have been into for a long time but you often get people who are not game developers trying to you know jump in on this hot new idea and not actually making good games out of it so I would I hope yeah. that there's a good game underneath it
2: they have a little video preview in the Verge article. It's about 30 seconds, so you can kind of see what the world building is like or what some of the actions and gameplay is like, but I don't know if it's going to be beneficial to really expect it to look a lot like some
0: beloved franchises. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next link?
1: Next, Next link.
0: link! Well, this one from Kyle Orland at Ars Technica is called How a Speedrunner Broke Super Mario Brothers Biggest Barrier. So, first off, let's talk about speedrunning. It's a particular style of gameplay where the only goal is to beat a video game in the shortest time possible. Speedrunners yeah, I
1: love speedruns.
0: Do you? Yeah, yeah. Stress me out. Mm -mm. (laughs) Well, speedrunners don't care about the points or the extra items or anything except getting to the end, right? Mm -hmm. And like all things digital, a thriving community has built up around the people who are really into this. Maybe Way's part of it, but (laughs) 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 aside from the various message boards where people share their tips and tricks, there is an official site, speedrun.com, where you can use approved software to record and register your best runs for any game out there because this is a philosophy more than a specific game so like super mm-hmm. mario brothers is in there because it's one of the uh, one of the classics but you mm-hmm. can do this for any game if you decide you want to true so one of the big rules in the speedrunning community is that a human has to be pushing the buttons because it's possible to just program a perfect run and that's known as a tool assisted speedrun or tas and there is a place for it tas's are still useful because they set a benchmark for what is theoretically possible and then bit by bit, the human speedrunners try to inch closer to that goal. Hmm. So in the case of Super Mario Brothers, the fastest TAS, which remains unbroken since 2011, sets the limit at four minutes, 54.03 seconds. And th- like that's beating the entire game from Whoa. the first world to the entire rescuing the princess. Four and a half minutes. Well, I mean, five well, are, are
2: we encountering like the warps that will like help you skip over worlds and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. That-
0: yeah, yeah. You use the okay. warps. And you also get to use bugs. So for the TAS, it would actually be impossible for a human to pull off because it relies on an acceleration bug that requires pushing both the left and right directional buttons at the same time, which you can't do on an original Super NES controller. So Mm -hmm. it's considered acceptable to take advantage of a bug if it's part of the original code and hardware but you can't do anything that a kid in the 80s with a physical copy of the game couldn't have done. Mm. So, you know, when someone finds a new bug that shaves off a few milliseconds, it spreads like wildfire through the community. As the article notes, discussing these glitches in full detail would take an entire separate article, but they do list a few of the standard ones just to give you an idea of what kind of precision these players are operating at. So, for example, moving Mario with sub-pixel precision allows a player to get Mario's foot partially stuck in a wall. And if you time <laughs> it just right and then jump repeatedly from that position, Mario can run all the way through certain walls, which saves <laughs> a fraction of a second in some key spots of the game. And that's the kind of level that we're talking about where people are like, I saved one-tenth of a second and right. that puts me in the leaderboard. <laughs> and if you do a version of this wall clipping move at the base of the flag at the end of each level, you can skip the flag-lowering animation, which saves a huge amount of time. Huh. There's also the wrong warp bug, which happens because the game can only load one value at a time in the memory slot for where does a pipe go. So by carefully scrolling Mario's position on the screen and then backtracking just as the next pipe value is loaded, you can fool the game into loading the wrong value and warping Mario to an unintended location. (laughs) So, you know, even though it sounds like cheating, it's important to remember that in order to do these types of moves the player has to be moving with frame-perfect precision. And this game runs at 60 frames per second. So when we say frame-perfect, that's one sixtieth of a second. And these guys are so good at this that they've even held exhibitions where they play blindfolded because they've got the muscle memory down just like they were playing a musical instrument. Wow. Yeah. The other big thing about Super Mario Bros. speedrunning in particular is the so-called frame rule. So basically, each level ends with a blackout screen while it loads the next level, and these Mm -hmm. are triggered on a steady 21-frame timer. So it's a little like a bus that leaves for the next level every 0.35 seconds. Even if you get to the end of the level a few frames earlier, you end up waiting for the same bus and not saving any time. So when Mm -hmm. a new human record is set, it's almost always a 0.35-second improvement over the previous best. And to get back to the actual subject of this article, that is, in fact, exactly what user Niftski has just pulled off. (sighs) His final time, which he was streaming live when it happened, was four minutes, 54.948 seconds, which is just nine frames off the theoretical human limit calculated by the TAS. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Aside from pulling off every standard move perfectly, which is an unbelievable feat in itself, He Uh innovated a few new moves, including letting go of the right directional button for exactly two frames in the middle of the level, which is just one thirtieth of a second. Like, I don't even think I could move my hand that fast if I wanted to, (laughs) let alone on command when you're supposed to. Right. And when that final time came in, everyone watching knew what he had done. The all caps comments flooded the screen and <laughs> Nifty himself is on the recording. He starts screaming and saying, come on, dude, stay calm. Don't throw up. But like, <laughs> this is super important to these guys. The article compared it to speed running's version of the four minute mile. Like having broken wow. this this level is just amazing for these guys who care about this stuff.
1: And I mean, these are so fun to watch just towards the very end, because like when they beat these records, they lose yeah. their minds. Yeah. Like they are so <laughs> excited. It's it's amazing. It's incredible. Well,
0: it's under five minutes. You can watch the whole thing. Like they have the video yeah. of his run in the article and you can I mean, you can sit there and watch it. I was having this like nostalgia of like, oh, yeah, I remember that level. And oh, yeah. And, oh the game's over. Like, he just beat the
2: (laughs) whole thing. (laughs) That's astonishing.
0: And he's not resting on his laurels. Niftski already has plans to set new records, including one for Minus World, which is a level that is an entire bug in and of itself and isn't supposed to be included in the game. But everybody knows how to get there, and beating it in a particular time is also part of the glory, I guess you could say. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm
2: not doing enough with my life.
0: I don't know. <laughs> but you know what? If they're having fun, there's something to be said for pushing yourself to a particular limit and of there's dexterity involved. I mean, like I said, you <laughs> they've got a camera on the guy's face, but they also have a camera on his hands and you can watch what he's doing. Ooh, wow. It's just, yeah, it's like a piano player, but way more precise. It's very cool looking.
1: <laughs> so I got to recommend for anybody who's interested in this topic, there's a tool-assisted speedrun explanation video called Super Mario 64 Rolling Rocks 0.5 A Presses. <laughs> so this person explains how he was able to beat a level using half a press of a button, Ugh. including very technical details. details. Details of like what that means, how it works. There's like a whole side dialogue into like the parallel universe mechanic. It's 30 minutes long and it's absolutely worth your time because (laughs) you're going to be clutching your head by the end of it just in (laughs) sheer awe of the amount of detail that they go into. Anyways, that's my recommendation. Very into these videos. (laughs) Whenever they come up.
0: Yeah, it just goes to show we haven't lost any of our skill or artistry. We've just redirected it to other things. You know, Mm -hmm. like Mozart was really good at the violin, and this kid's really good at Super Mario Brothers. Like, it's still (laughs) finger dexterity.
1: Yeah, I mean, hilariously, nowadays, I think violinists are more nerdy than video game players, so.
0: Oh, sure. And I I say that as a former viola player, so I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, this next one is a new study from the University of Cambridge. The headline is Game Combats Political Misinformation by Letting Players Undermine Democracy. Oh, dear. It sounds terrifying, but it's actually very cute. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Researchers have created a video game called Harmony Square in which players are recruited as a chief disinformation officer And are supposed to use tactics such as trolling to sabotage elections in a peaceful town. Oh, my gosh. The article includes a link to the game, which is short but very fun. And more importantly, they've done the data collection to show that playing this game makes people more aware of misinformation techniques and better able oh. to spot when these tactics mm. are being used against them in the real world. They were also very quick to note that among the study participants, their political leanings had no bearing on how good or bad they were at determining various misinformation, and they all got better after playing. Okay. Yeah. All right. The study was funded by the U.S. Department of State's Global Engagement Center and the Department of Homeland Security Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. I'm not sure why they need security twice in that acronym, but I won't argue with them. Um, And it was published in the Harvard Misinformation Review. So I don't know if there's a lot of articles in that journal or if it's just been created for this one, but I like it. I think that's a good name for a journal. They described the game as an example of pre-bunking, which has been shown in other studies to be more effective than debunking a bad information source after the fact, right? So you're sort of preparing mm -hmm. people with skills before they go out there and are exposed to things. And it works even though the game is pretty obvious and tongue-in-cheek about what it's doing. Right. So the residents of Harmony Square are described in the game as obsessed with democracy, and the player is trying to discredit the major party's candidate for bear controller by setting up a fake online news site, trolling the town's beloved local TV anchor and polarizing the townspeople against each other on the subject of bears. So it's very silly and you can play it on the website. I highly recommend it. It's a cute little game. And in the randomized controlled trial, researchers took 681 people, asked them to rate the reliability of a series of news and social media posts, some were real, some were misinformation, and some were even faked misinformation created specifically for the study in case the participants had already come across the real world examples that they used. Ah. Then Mm. they gave half the participants Harmony Square to play, while the other half played Tetris, just in case playing games in general makes you less susceptible (laughs) to misinformation, and then asked them to rate another series of news posts for reliability the perceived reliability of misinformation dropped an average of 16% after just 10 minutes of playing Harmony Square. And yeah, it really worked. And the authors acknowledge that they still need to study whether these effects can be longer lasting with a more robust and engaging game. So basically, we need to get Sid Meier on the phone and say, you know, (laughs) hey, buddy, make us a really, really obsessive game because, uh, frankly... Even if it doesn't work, if people are playing all their time, then they won't be exposed to misinformation because they'll be sucked into the game. Mm. Yeah, but I'm so leery of, like, the cure for misinformation
2: is to become a propagandist. Like, Right, is to teach people how to be good (laughs) at it. Right, right, right. (laughs) I mean, I get it, and that makes a lot of sense to kind of show how the sausage is being made, but then we have a whole bunch of sausage makers and... (laughs)
1: <laughs> mm, I don't know,
2: man. Don't know if you want to give those skills to just anybody, huh? <laughs> yeah. That, that being said, anything that promotes critical thinking skills is something that I do want to support. So,
0: yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, and I'm a fan of gamifying anything. I really, really support the idea of using yeah. games to get people sucked in. Even when they know they're being taught something, they're happier being taught it when they're being taught by a game. True. So, uh, yeah. you know, go play it. It's fun. It only takes about 10 minutes and maybe you'll come out a little bit wiser than you even thought you might going in.
2: Well, for sure it will enhance my uh, marketing career.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Next link. link.
1: This article comes to us from Slate.com, and it's titled, Gaming the System. The stock market is a casino. (laughs) Uh, To be precise, it is 15% casino. So says Alec Kumar, an economist at the University of Miami who studies the relationships between gambling and stock market data. Hmm. Now, you know, we had to cover this at some point on Mm -hmm, the podcast, mm -hmm. so uh, GameStop which was the number one traded stock in the world for several days last week, does not actually fit Kumar's definition. It's just too expensive right now. And before Reddit traders discovered it, it was not particularly volatile. So textbook lotto stocks are no-name or forgotten companies like BlackBerry and Kodak, and obviously there's a great deal of YOLOing to be done with a stock like Tesla as well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. GameStop, however, is linked to lottery stocks in an important way. Its Richter scale swings are intimately tied to the presence of retail investors or just average everyday people who might put money into the stock market. GameStop's meteoric week was the dramatic culmination of a year of unprecedented democratization of the stock market, and in Kumar's research, which spans three dozen countries, stock market gambling clearly rises with market participation. Hmm. So, the saying attributed to Joseph Kennedy, uh, it's time to sell when the shoeshine boy starts giving stock tips, seems very quaint, and not just because no one's worn leather dress shoes since last March. Uh, <laughs> the subreddit Wall Street Bets, which drove the GameStop run up, now has 8.4 million members. And uh, if I recall correctly, it was like 1.5 million like two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And now it has millions more casual visitors. And the app Robinhood, whose no fee trades push, brokers like Etrade and Charles Schwab to quash transaction costs got 3 million downloads in January alone. So there's one popular way to think about this episode, which is as a David and Goliath story of downtrodden internet traders taking down the heavyweight hedge funders. But the more accurate and more obvious way of seeing things is that a democratized stock market is just one of the ways that America is rapidly renewing its taste for gambling. Hmm. Typically, stock market gambling is correlated with casino restrictions, Kumar says, which reflects a fixed baseline desire to place bets shifting to what's available a theory that may apply to pandemic-era closures of actual casinos. But what does not follow is that more widespread stock market access necessarily eats into the popular appetite for casino gambling, and on the contrary, many forms of gambling may thrive at the same time. It all kind of happens at once. Hmm. In July, DC's Capital One Arena became the first NBA venue to open an on-site sportsbook with a ceremony that featured season ticket holders of the Capitals, Mystics, and Wizards making bets. And even the Commodity Futures Trading Commission is entertaining a proposal to open futures markets for NFL games. And what? I don't really know what that looks like or how that works exactly because, uh, you know, normally market. it's a price. Yeah, yeah. but uh, I guess they're just betting on, on some spread of, of wins or something like that. I don't know, but that's pretty wild. The sports betting frenzy comes on the heels of a May 2018 Supreme Court decision that ended Nevada's monopoly on the practice. Ah. And since that decision, more than two dozen states and the District of Columbia have approved sports bets. And no one really knows how big the market is at this point, but it's likely in the tens of billions. So, since the reemergence of Atlantic City as a gaming destination in 1978, many local governments have considered casinos as tools of urban regeneration. Uh, cities like Niagara Falls, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Detroit, Springfield, Massachusetts, St. Louis, Cincinnati, Cleveland, and New Orleans have all approved downtown casinos with varying success. Mostly, they fail to revive their surroundings, but they do create jobs and tax revenue. Hmm. Andrew Yang, the entrepreneur currently leading the field in the New York City mayoral race, would like to build a casino in the New York Harbor. And it's a little hard to fathom just how great a reversal this represents from half a century ago. In Mm -hmm. 1964... There was just one state lottery, and revenue from tribal gaming, most of which was permitted by a 1987 Supreme Court decision, grew from $212 million in 1988 to $35 billion today. And that's all without mentioning the internet. This is all just physical places. Wow. Naturally, the appeal for betters is as old as time, but some critics have seen a contemporary spirit to the fever since last March as low economic mobility, expensive housing markets, high levels of social distrust, and being locked in the house have encouraged moonward (laughs) Mm -hmm. risk-taking in the portfolio. And uh, here's Alexander Salmon writing in N Plus One. By the time the pandemic hit, basically every American institution failed, except crucially for the market. American society emerged like some genetically modified chicken with cartoonishly (laughs) oversized financial markets hanging from the chest of a body that could barely walk, see, or breathe.
2: I mean, where's the lie, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to say it's wrong.
0: It's just super depressing.
1: Yeah. I know.
2: And I love how like in that laundry list of like what all caused this, they didn't mention the word like rampant
0: widening inequality once. Yeah, because that's yeah. a real factor. When money is tighter, people spend more on lottery tickets.
2: Yeah. And then when people see other people, you know, living in luxury, like we've got all of our... Influencers and celebrities mm-hmm. on Instagram doing, we feel, if not entitled, then there's that aspirational component. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, the next paragraph is actually, as user B217 put it on Wall Street Bets on Wednesday, they really think losing some money is new to the 99%. The 1% <laughs> literally rob us and cheat us out of money every single day. This isn't anything new. This mm-hmm. is just the closest we've gotten to flipping things in our favor slightly, even if it was only something like 0.012% of their wealth
2: <laughs> right.
1: so with their onboarding of normies into the stock market are robin hood and wall street bets forces for good the research suggests that individual investors underperform institutions and not only because of the transaction costs they tend to buy stocks in the news they buy companies that are geographically near them or companies where they work they sell winning investments and keep losing ones, and they don't diversify their portfolios. Mm-hmm. I personally knew it was time to look away from GameStop entirely once my mom was calling me about it.
0: Yeah, uh, you're like, no, it's done now. That's <laughs> Yeah, it's over.
1: Yeah. It's all over. Uh, same thing with Dogecoin, although that is still rocketing. Thanks, Elon. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'll leave that to the professionals and uh, those <laughs> with plenty of risk, whatever the opposite of a version is. Risk embraceal. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link.
0: All right. Well, we have an article from Wired that, like a lot of my favorite articles, it covers a world or I guess a fandom that I had no idea about. It's about the world of online chess and specifically the world of cheaters in online chess. Huh. Yeah. So Levi Rosman is a 25-year-old chess prodigy. He started playing in ranked tournaments when he was seven. He became a national master at 16 and an international master at 18. And I would personally only ever heard of a Grandmaster, but I looked Mm -hmm. it up and International Master is just one step below. Wow. The way you achieve these rankings is through something called a FIDE rating, or FIDE, which is a standardized point system in the chess world that has to do with how many official games you've won against other International and Grandmasters. The points don't guarantee you a title, but a Grandmaster has to have a minimum of 2,500 points, and Levi Rosman has 2,431, so he's close. Yeah. But like all good millennials, Rosman doesn't just play on the competitive circuit. He also has a YouTube and a Twitch channel where he streams live games that he plays on chess.com. And his big angle there, other than just sort of offering commentary while he's playing, is catching cheaters. Because on the one hand, you would think it would be insanely easy to cheat at online chess, right? Just have a computer opponent running in another window, put in the other person's moves as your own, and then do whatever the computer does against you. But on the other hand, these chess guys are all big stats nerds, and they've figured out some really in-depth ways of analyzing whether a player might be cheating just by the way they play. Ah. So a couple of weeks ago, on March 2nd, Rosman was streaming to about 12,000 viewers when he started a match with a user called Dua Keep Us, and almost immediately he declared, all right, this looks like a cheater. And of course, wow. his fans went nuts in the chat, right? Because this is why they watch. And Rosman very specifically said as he started the match, let's see if we can get some content here.
1: <laughs> so
0: they're having fun with it, but it's very clearly, uh, th- there's definitely an element of that kind of schadenfreude thing on the internet where you're like trying to out somebody and ruin their lives, you know, mm-hmm. little stuff. So as they're playing, Rosman is pointing out a bunch of inconsistencies, like the fact that Dua Keep Us was ranked at 2300 points, but had no actual titles to go along with it and a 1,000 of those points had been gained in just the last month. Wow. Another suspicious thing was that when you're playing at Rosman's skill level, the obvious moves play out really quickly, while you spend more time thinking about the complicated moves. But Dua Keep Us took around 7 to 10 seconds for every move, hard or easy. So when the match was over, which Dua Keep Us won in just 10 minutes, Rosman used a sort of known online tool to analyze how similar his moves were to what the most common chess algorithms would have chosen. Mm. He scored a 94% similarity compared to Rosman's 76%. And in two of his last 10 games, Dua Kipas had hit over 99%. So Rosman reported the account, Chess.com banned him, and the fans were happy. But here's where it starts to get ugly and very weird. The next morning, Rosman woke up to this avalanche of abusive posts, mostly in Indonesian... Accusing him of using his celebrity status in the chess world to ban a legitimate player because he was just a sore loser. There were numerous death threats, not just to him, but to his girlfriend's accounts as well. And Rosman pretty quickly figured out that the hate was all coming from an anime superfan page on Facebook, whose owner just happened to be Dua son. Huh. He said his father's real name is Dadang Subur, and he's a 60 year old bird feed seller in Indonesia. As the article describes it, In terse bullet points above an endless scroll of anime memes, Akbar told a much different version of the match, how his father had played a famous Twitch streamer and won, and was then mass-reported by Rosman's huge fanbase. He said Sabor was a retired professional chess player who'd only recently discovered online chess, which explained the meteoric rise from a complete unknown.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking, like, a thousand points in a month, you either have to be cheating or you have to have already been a pro and you just started.
0: Right. And even then, you have to play, like, eight hours a day. Like, just winning that many matches is very difficult. Yeah. So the whole thing went viral on multiple platforms, causing a chess subreddit to get temporarily shut down by moderators. And forcing Rosman to lock all his accounts. Wow. It also became a big PR problem for Chess.com, who had to come out and sort of reassure everybody that reported accounts are not just blocked based on someone's word. The administrators go through this long, careful process with like seven different people to determine whether someone is really cheating. So Rosman obviously did not appreciate all the harassment, and he reached out to the Sun to try to resolve things peacefully. And the son offered a bunch of explanations for all the reasons why his father's account seemed suspicious. You know, he's technologically challenged. He's got an old mm-hmm. phone, so he can't enter his moves as quickly. And some of his early games were really bad because the son actually played a few games on his father's account. Subur himself recorded a 20-minute video in Indonesian defending his win, but saying that he didn't approve of the harassment that his followers were now heaping upon Rosman. He just wanted everyone to go back to being nice and to have his account reinstated.
1: Yeah, very fair.
0: Yeah. His son also shared a bunch of documentation with Wired, including some old chess awards in Indonesia and a handwritten notebook with strategy notes about how the bots play, basically claiming that he played like a bot because he'd intentionally learned how to beat them. Hmm. Unfortunately, none of this convinced the administrators of chess.com, who say they use a much more rigorous process to look for cheating than the little tool Rosman had. They say they gather data about how often, for example, a user is switching away to another tab during a game. And they can even tell when a player has a chat window open with another live player who's feeding them moves. Wow. COO Danny Wrench said that while this is one of the most crazy controversies online chess has ever seen, the fact remains that this was, quote, an absolute, absolute certain case of cheating. Meanwhile, two weeks later, Rosman's YouTube account is still receiving about one nasty message every few minutes. And Sabur and his sons say they're trying to get an Indonesian grandmaster to come to their house in person and play Sabur live on camera so he can prove himself.
1: Wow. I...
0: Yeah, it feels very underworldy. Like, yeah. you know, there's going to be a murder at the end of this story that just got way out of hand.
1: I mean, I understand why some people would take chess seriously. but. It's interesting that, you know, the story sounds very plausible and very convincing, you know, like, oh, he's just an older man who has been playing chess for years and only Mm -hmm. just discovered it and, you know, all these other reasons and blah, blah. But the admins are saying, yeah, no, we we got you. So it's like, is all of this just a guise? Like, is this just wounded ego at having gotten caught, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know. It's, It's very, very strange.
0: Yeah. Well, and you can also imagine, like, even if you're using the moves to make yourself better... You know, you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, this is the move I would make. What would the computer do? Oh, I see why that's better. Okay, And it just never even occurred to him that cheating in an online forum would just rain hell down upon him.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And the other guy.
0: Yeah. You don't think of the chess world as being embodied by extremely online aggressive people. But the article did note that a big reason for a lot of this is because during the pandemic, people have started watching chess Twitch streamers way more Yeah, both because they're at home and because of the Queen's Gambit like interest in chess has just skyrocketed so you now have a lot of people watching who weren't necessarily giant chess fans but are definitely fans of seeing people get taken down online so yeah
1: my wife is actually very into these chess videos on YouTube as well now and Mm -hmm. I was kind of surprised to see that especially uh, younger chess pros know how to put on a show and know how to be entertaining they Mm -hmm. completely busted my preconception of, you know, chess people is like utterly silent and just super smart, but externally boring.
0: (laughs) I can't wait till we have like the newest, hippest product endorsements from chess players. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this bonus episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. As always, if you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damn In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.